More than one in three people will face cancer in their lifetime. Unfortunately, fear can stop you from getting cancer screening, but it won't stop cancer. Early detection can save your life. Don't wait for symptoms to appear to act. Cancer screening is safe, effective, and accessible for everyone, including free or low-cost screening programs. Go to cancerscreenquiz.com now and take the American Cancer Society's two-minute cancer screening quiz to find out what screening tests are right for you. Don't wait. Take the quiz. Get screened. Go to cancerscreenquiz.com now. Cancerscreenquiz.com. Hi, this is Gilbert Gottfried, and you know, we love all our generous supporters on Patreon, and we're adding more goodies all the time. Bonus episodes, behind-the-scenes videos, questions from patrons, coming attractions, and more. Go to patreon.com slash Gilbert Gottfried. Thank you for your support. Snow time, winter time, Christmas time. The time of sugar plums, Santa Claus, and at last those lovable children from Peanuts. Enjoy a Charlie Brown Christmas. Meet Charlie Brown, Schroeder and Beethoven, Lucy, and that impudent hound, Snoopy. That's terrible, Charlie Brown! Here comes Charlie Brown now. Listen. Thanks for the Christmas card you sent me, Violet. I didn't send you a Christmas card, Charlie Brown. Don't you know sarcasm when you hear it? Be here as your favorite comic strip comes to life. This year, enjoy a Charlie Brown Christmas. Season's greetings, GGACP faithful. Your devoted co-host Frank here to introduce another encore episode, another best of GGACP. We've been working very hard this year and hard of late, and uh, we're taking a little time off for the holidays, some time to be with our families, much needed time off, which we always say, but it really is true. So we're reposting our second holiday episode from 2020, and that's our tribute to a Charlie Brown Christmas with special guest Peanuts expert Chip Kidd, our friend Chip Kidd, and Craig Schultz, the son of legendary Charles Schultz and the keeper of the Peanuts flame. Now, this is a, a personal favorite episode of mine. It's among my favorites. A Charlie Brown Christmas was an important part of my childhood and many people's childhoods, obviously. And we wanted to do an episode about it ever since we started the show way back in 2014. And these were the right guys to look back with us. So we finally got around to doing it. Um, It's talked a little bit about everything, uh, the history of the special itself, the contributions of Lee Mendelssohn and Vince Guaraldi, I think my favorite part of the show is toward the end when when Craig got a little choked up talking about his dad. It was a genuinely special moment, and uh, you'll hear it listening back. So the timing is just right with this one, and we hope you enjoy this encore presentation as much as we enjoyed recording it. And as we close out another year, seven years in, can't believe it, uh, coming up on show 400, obviously, Gil, Dara, and I, along with the entire team, 
Josh, Michelle, Greg, Dino, Jared, Aristotle, John Seals, John Murray, and Gino want to wish you and yours from all of us a happy and a healthy holiday. We're very grateful to you guys for keeping this flame burning as long as you have. We love you. We wish you a happy and a healthy Christmas and New Year, and we will see you next year. Enjoy. This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. And I'm here with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre. And 70 years ago, a shy cartoonist from Minnesota began publishing a daily comic strip featuring characters named Charlie Brown, Snoopy, Linus, Lucy, and Schroeder, among others which he would go on to write and draw for 50 years, publishing over 17,000 daily strips and making it arguably the longest story ever told by one human being. And 55 years ago this week, a primetime TV special based on those characters premiered on CBS a show that's aired every year since and been seen by hundreds and millions of viewers all over the world. That TV special was a Charlie Brown Christmas, and we're here to pay tribute to it, as well as the beloved strip and its legendary creator with our two experts. Craig Schultz is the son of Peanuts creator Charles Schultz, as well as president of Creative Associates, the company that oversees all Peanuts content. He's also the co-producer and co-writer, along with his son Brian, of 2015's critically acclaimed The Peanuts Movie, as well as the screenwriter for Peanut shows that will air in 2021 on Apple TV+. Chip Kidd is an award-winning designer, editor, pop culture historian, and self-described Peanuts nerd, as well as the author of numerous essential books, Peanuts, The Art of Charles M. Schultz, Only What's Necessary, Charles Schultz and the Art of Peanuts, and the newly released book, The Peanuts Poster Collection. Frank and I are excited to welcome to the show for our second holiday episode of 2020, Craig Schultz and Chip Kidd. Gentlemen, welcome. Hi there. Hi there. Chip, welcome, Chip, welcome back. Craig, welcome for the first time. Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> well, I, I think that totally sums it up. Uh, what else is there to say? <laughs> glad to be here. He came bearing a gag. He, how long have you been hanging on to that one, Greg? <laughs> a couple of years. That, that's so funny how, 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 uh, how peanuts those cartoons have influenced us. 
that you just have to make that sound effect and everybody knows. <laughs> oh, yeah, worldwide. Every kid knows that when they listen to their school teacher. <laughs> when, when, since, since you did that, Craig, when was that decision ultimately made? Was that dad's decision? No, or, that was done or, in... Or Melendez? Uh, it was done basically in 1967 mm -hmm. at a show called You're in Love, Charlie Brown, where uh, the kids had to talk and listen to the teacher. And they had Vince Guaraldi, who was, you know, doing all the scores for those shows, and he broke his trombone out and just started going wah, 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 and literally created the language. You know, and in the movie, um, we ended up getting Trombone Shorty out of Louisiana to come out, and we practiced with him for about a couple days to get him to, to be able to convey language through the trombone, which is a really interesting prospect, and he was super excited to do that, and uh, it came out really well. Yeah, it was fun to see that again in the Peanuts movie. And, and I, I had forgotten it. And tell us about the music and the music everybody remembers. Well, the music's classic. I mean, sadly, you know, from the, you know, we'll stick with Charlie Brown Christmas for now. You know, it, it was done with Vince Guaraldi. And uh, the this, this story goes that uh, Lee Mendelssohn was listening to uh, Vince Guaraldi in the Monterey concert. And he was playing Cast Your Fate to the Wind, which is similar to uh, the song that became Linus and Lucy. And as soon as he heard that, he called my dad up and he said, I got the soundtrack for the Charlie Brown Christmas. And no one had even considered doing jazz at that point. You know, the studio uh, didn't, they never did like it. But, you know, Lee heard that soundtrack and just immediately connected it with the Peanuts characters and the, and the feeling for the show. And uh, they got Vince on board. And, you know, sadly, Vince died in 76 at yeah, a concert. Young man. You know? mm. uh, the story goes that Vince was playing a concert, went back to the hotel room to take a break and he just dropped dead in the hotel room never got to go back and do the second set wow a, a great talent chip we're you know we'll talk about the genesis of the show and we'll and we'll talk more about about vince Guaraldi. chip do you have a, a a vivid memory of seeing a charlie brown christmas for the first time i know you're a guy with a good memory oh i mean good recollection of your childhood apps you know absolutely just in in retrospect I, just the whole story of how it got made and just like like what Craig just said like that's that's amazing I never knew that wah 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 was was Vince Guaraldi on a trombone that's <laughs> it's that's so cool it's fantastic but I re I remember like the 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 silence at the end was just so unlike anything that I had experienced like with Bugs Bunny and certainly, or certainly like Batman, like the, the use of, of silence uh, mm -hmm. in, that, in that show was, was really remarkable. And, and the fact that there wasn't a laugh track was so, right. was so important. And I, I, these, these are things that I recognize in, um, in retrospect. You know, I think as a, as a four or five-year-old, you're just sort of mesmerized by by the story and what you're seeing, but um, there's just so many aspects of that of that show that were just so groundbreaking, and all sorts of things that that we kind of take for granted now. But but these were all the things that like scared CBS to death. I think. Yeah. What well, was Craig, Craig was the, was the laugh track was never really on the table. I mean, it was it was I assume it was summarily dismissed. Well, yeah, my dad laid down the ground rules for the movies, and he wasn't going to give up on it. But I guess, I mean, though, I think the one piece of trivia about none of you know that this show would have never happened had it not been for an automobile. 
Do any of you realize that? The Ford Falcon. One for the Ford Falcon. That's it. This show never would have occurred. And, uh, you know, the story, the story goes, obviously, that uh, CBS executives saw the Ford Falcon commercial, you know, and went to Lee and said, hey, is there any thought of you guys ever making a Christmas special? And Lee said, well, certainly. Hmm. So then Lee calls my dad up the next day and says, uh, guess what I did? I just sold a Charlie Brown Christmas. <laughs> and my dad goes, what's that? Yeah. <laughs> he, goes, he goes, that's the show you're going to write this weekend. And uh, they pounded the show out in no time, you know, and got it made. And Six months. Yeah, six months. Un- it was, it was unheard kind of, of. It's amazing. And, and what does the title Peanuts mean? Oh, that's a sensitive area. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. hated. That might be another that's show. A, that's a whole other show there. My dad hated hated that that name. And again, that got ran by the executives in New York. You know, the strip when he when he sold the strip after you know running around the country for years, they sold it to United Future Syndicate and and they didn't like Little Folks, because Little Folks was what he wanted to name it, and that was used by another cartoonist. So they ran it by a room full of people in their in their offices and somebody came up with the idea of peanuts. And they loved it and ran it by my dad, and my dad hated it ever since. And the, the, the thing you'll notice when you read the comic strip, if you go back through enough of me, it starts off with Peanuts. Then midway through the early years, it says, Peanuts featuring good old Charlie Brown. Well, my dad always wanted to name the strip right. after a little yeah. called Good Old Charlie Brown. So he kind of thought if he put it in there long enough, they could concede and sort of flip it over and, and rename the strip Good Old Charlie Brown. But, you know, obviously that never happened. It never worked. So, so Pete, the Peanuts title was like a, an albatross around his neck for 50 years. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, and, and the other thing is, he never, ever owned those characters. You know, a lot of people would assume, because these days everybody owns their artwork, you know, for as long as he did the comic strip, he never, ever owned the rights to those characters. Oh, and tell us how your father got the title, uh, the, or the name, rather, of Charlie Brown. Well, Charlie Brown was a friend of his that he had met. And he had used the name Charlie Brown in earlier comic strips he had done. And then when he finally got Peanuts and sold Peanuts, you know, he, he went to him and approached him and said, hey, would you mind if I use your name in this new comic strip I'm doing? And uh, Charlie Brown agreed to it. And, you know, he had to live with, <laughs> live with a legacy of being Charlie, the, the real Charlie Brown for the rest of his life. But, uh, you know, my dad, most of the characters in the comic strip are named after friends of my dad from the early years. A lot of them were from the art instruction school he worked at. Um, and a lot of them I've known through the years. So, you know, it was interesting how he'd find somebody and, and either like their name or put them in the comic strip because they were friends of his. You know, I, I, I did a lot of reading up, uh, Craig, as I do, and uh, saw an interview with you, and you said that not, uh, all of the characters in the strip represented a side of him in some way, which I found yeah. fascinating. No, I think absolutely, and I, you know, now that I look back after he's gone and I and I revisit him and so forth, I think, you know, he really had two families. He had his original family with me, my brother, my sisters, and so forth, and he had the family of Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, Snoopy, and all those other characters. And and looking back, and I realize, you know, what could be a better job for fifty years than get to go to a studio and play with this cast of characters that you love, and you actually love them probably more than your real family. And every day you get to go play with these cast of characters. And you see how they interact with each other, you know, the relationships, the love, the disappointment, and so forth. But that's what drove him back to the to the table every day was was the joy of being able to play with this cast of characters. You know, how many of us are that lucky to be able to do something like that? Very few. And and your 
father once said in an interview, happiness is not funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and probably you, Gilbert, more than anyone knows that every car, every uh, stand-up comic comedian I know really has to have some kind of a dark side in, in their life one way or another. There's very few stand-up comics that comes out of a, of a joyful, everything rosy kind of world. You know, you need something to trigger you. And for, and for my dad, it was really, you know, his childhood growing up, you know, they made him skip a grade in school and he became the youngest kid in his class and got bullied and picked on. And then in his teenage years, you know, he was heading off to World War II and his mom died. And his mom said, you know, the, the day before he left, I guess we'll never see each other again. And he got on the train and went off to World War II. And that event wow. stuck with him emotionally for the rest of his life, dealing with the loss of his mother. And I think those, those losses are really what triggered the emotions and peanuts throughout the 50-year run. And, and then, the, like, Charlie Brown was kind of always a loser and depressed character, he seemed like. Yeah, we always say that, really, I mean, actually, all the characters were a piece of my dad, but for the most part, Charlie Brown was probably 90% of my dad. Yeah. And 10% was Snoopy, the fantasies and the joy, and being able to go in, in all these different places that he never really got to do. But uh, that's what he really was hoping to be. He hoped to be Snoopy, but unfortunately, he was stuck being Charlie Brown. <laughs> <laughs> And why did Snoopy sleep on the roof of his doghouse? <laughs> <laughs> kind of an impossibility when you think about that. That little angle is pretty pretty sharp up there. And I think he you know he started off drawing him as a normal dog, and then Snoopy kind of once Snoopy stood up on his hind legs and, and evolved that. You know, the whole world just opened up to my dad, and he saw that happen right in front of his eyes. Because in the beginning, he was just a basically little dog, like every other little dog. And then he stood up and then he started having the thought balloons. And then, you know, in the early sixties, all of a sudden, he, you know, my dad got the idea of him taking on the red Baron and become a pilot. And from there it was just endless. The world opened up and his creativity just flowed. Chip, Chip talk some, about something that, uh, uh, and how you're affected by it as a, as a, a self-described peanuts nerd, something Craig just talked about uh, or what that Gilbert alluded to, you know, that some people say that the strip was a study in disappointment the great pumpkin never comes. The base, every baseball game is a loss. All the loves, all the love affairs, or the would-be love affairs, are unrequited in in the strip. Uh, Charlie never gets to kick the football. It 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 seems like that's part of its success. That's part of the beauty of it. Uh, well, absolutely, because we can we can no matter who we are, we can all relate to that. Um, there was always somebody in your life that you loved that didn't love you back. There was always that thing you were trying to do that you, I mean, that you just couldn't do, but you really wanted to. And, uh, but I remember as a kid, like, I just, I hated being in the little league. Just, it was just awful, but I had to do it <laughs> because my brother did it and my best friend was doing it. And I remember stepping up there. It was literally like, you know, uh, uh, not, the, the ninth inning and the bases were loaded. And then I, at age eight, was like stepped up to the plate to try and like hit everybody home. And I struck out. And it, it with that is Charlie Brown. That is what we that we what we all relate to. But he has such a great heart. And that's what makes it work. Like it's 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 not about. I, it's not about misery. 
and disappointment. It's about weathering all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And he does it because he's a good person. And that just, that, that saves it. And, and, and most of the other kids are too. Um, Lucy, uh, <laughs> <laughs> she, 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 she sort of like comes and goes in that, in that department, but, but they're, they're, they're at their core, they're good people. And, and so, but they go through all of this stuff that we all go through in our lives. And that's what helped make it so endearing and work. But, the, but, and that's just the, the content and the, but the form of it is so great. The way it looks and the way he distills human emotion in such a simple, simple way. And yet, and yet those emotions are, are so direct, whether they're like joyful or, or sad or disappointed or, you know, courageous. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going off on a, on a tangent here. But, but, but yes, like you're not going to have a story if everything is, is, uh, is perfect. It's like what Craig just said about, about stand-up comedians. Like they, they're not going to have a career unless there's a problem. Well, yeah. So the, the, we we know the best humor and the best comedy comes from adversity. Yeah, and or pain. And Charles Schultz said that uh, he he's very weary about being happy or saying that he's happy in some interview. Uh, saying that if he's he if he says I'm happy, then that means something bad will happen. <laughs> so, uh, fair to say, he had a complicated relationship with happiness, Greg. Yes, I would think so. But don't we all? I mean, don't we all? Don't we yeah. all? It's like I'm afraid to say things are going well because I'll jinx it. Yeah, yeah he was yeah. never one. To, he was never one to kind of you know roll with his celebrity, and he never felt like he was celebrity. He, you know, it was really, really interesting to see because he would go to the ice cream every day, sit down, have the same breakfast every day, and so forth. And people would come up and talk to him. And invariably, whether it was, you know, whoever's being interviewed by, he would spend more time interviewing the interviewer than it would be the other way around because he was always fascinated about people's lives. And it, and it was very genuine. It wasn't like just kind of, kind of a phony, oh, what do you do? I work for CBS, whatever sort of thing. I mean, he genuinely wanted to know. He wanted to delve into people. He was, he was what I call a, a true humanist. He wanted to know what was behind the background of all these people. And that's what I think he, he was. He studied human nature continuously whether it was through religion or just people's, you know, basic jobs and ethos. It was, it was very interesting. Yeah. He, and, and a very learned guy. I mean, a guy who, who, who read oh, quite a lot and put he, that into the strips. Wow. I found it interesting doing, doing the research that when he would draw, uh, when he would draw the, 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 the Beethoven notes that he made certain that everything was accurate. Yeah, absolutely. Which he, is fascinating. He made certain that he was never going to offend any other profession. So he typically, he, was, he would be reading four books at, at one time, all the time. But when it came to doing something on the comic strip, whether it was something to do with ophthalmology or, or science, he would d- take the books out and dig through them incessantly to make sure that the words were correct, the fitting was correct, the use was correct. And again, the music notes is a, is a classic example of that. All that music could be played by a by a pianist, we did that at the museum one time. We had someone come in and we had a classic piano, and then they actually played the panels out of the comic strip. Oh, that's cool! And it was all right. by hand. Uh, yeah. yeah, all done by hand. 
Yeah, and, and never with any help. And he, no, just him, just him. Yeah, he wanted to be a Disney animator. Didn't last very long, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah she applied at Disney, they yeah. turned him down, which was sort of interesting. And, uh, Best thing that ever it. happened to him. Gilbert, you relate to this thing that we're talking about a few minutes ago, this, not, you know, sort of not trusting prosperity and not trusting oh, yes. happiness. I mean, that's something that drives you and drives your humor as well. I've known you a very long time. So, you know, I, I think this is something you connect to emotionally. Yeah, it's, it's just like I feel like when I'm having, if I ever am walking down the street and saying, oh, Jim, starting to feel good. Then I'll go, uh-oh, uh, I'll remember everything bad that's happening in my life. And, uh, I, so, I think that's one of the great things about the strip is that, is that it recognized that, that neurotic nature in all of us. You know, that he, he, put, that in, he put that on the, on the page. Actually, uh, I remember <clears throat> the first time as a child, I ever encountered mm -hmm. the word neurotic mm -hmm. was Lucy. She was listening to, I think, Georgie Porgy Puddin' and Pie kissed the girls and made them cry. And the punchline in the, in the last panel was, wow, what a neurotic he must have been. And I would have been like in second grade. And I remember I took the book to my mom and I said, what does neurotic mean? And she's like, I don't know. Why don't you look it up? Oh, that's great. Yeah, I learned so much from the strip, too. I think that was a sample of his, of his attention to detail, because uh, one of his close attorney's friends who just passed on last week used to give a talk, and you know, I always you know, used the example of Charlie Brown was, was doing something, and I think the punchline was something like, yeah, he, and he, he really had to suffer. And he always went into that and said, you know, you could use any other word, and it wouldn't be the same thing as using the word suffer. You know, that word is so powerful. And, uh, you know, my dad would take the time to finish those strips off. And when he would do strips, it wasn't like he was doing them linearly, where he'd sit down and draw a strip from beginning to end. He would start on a strip, and he might get halfway through it, stick it aside for a while, until the word came. And when the right word came, or the right language came, then he would go back to that strip. So he always had numerous strips going at any given time. Um, just as It just says... He read books, the same thing. It wasn't mm -hmm. just linear, crank them out one, you know, like you would think like a production run, like, you know, Lucy on the conveyor belt with chocolates. It's, uh, <laughs> it's not quite that easy. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. It's that time of year again. New Year's. It's that time of year where we make those resolutions about dropping weight, answering our mom's calls, staying in touch with friends. It always feels like the perfect time to refocus on what we want in life, but it's easy to get stuck looking back on all of the resolutions we didn't keep last year. This year, there's one resolution I am definitely keeping, and that's making my mental health a priority. Make it part of your daily routine with Talkspace. Talkspace personally matches you with a licensed therapist you could connect with right from your phone or computer. I've been in therapy for years, but it's always been so challenging to find the right person. I've bounced around to different therapists and it's always, does this one take my insurance? Is this one close to my house? With Talkspace, you can do it from the comfort of your own home. Listen, 
everyone could use someone to talk to. I personally deal with some anxiety and my problem at night is those racing thoughts that I can't turn off. I'm up all hours of the night thinking about everything that everyone ever said to me and how am I going to get through this? My therapist at Talkspace taught me some really awesome breathing techniques that help me calm my mind, calm my body, and give me a more restful sleep. Connecting with a licensed therapist on Talkspace can help you feel better and it's secure. No one's going to hear what you say and that's the best part. Let all that talk fly. Unlike traditional therapy, Talkspace fits your schedule, not the other way around. Talkspace treats your privacy and security as their top priority. You get access to private virtual room with just you and your therapist. You can send your therapist messages 24-7 and get replies throughout the day. No need to wait for that weekly appointment. You owe it to yourself to make mental health a priority this year. And Talkspace makes it easy to keep. Visit Talkspace.com and get $100 off your first month when you use promo code STARBURNS at sign up. That's S-T-A-R-B-U-R-N-S. That's $100 off at Talkspace.com, promo code STARBURNS. Guys, remember how awkward it used to be receiving clothes and gifts from relatives that you knew you were never going to wear? You had to smile and pretend that you loved them anyway, especially socks and underwear. Yikes. Well, our friends at Stance, S-T-A-N-C-E, have changed all that. Stance has made gift giving super simple this holiday. Uh, Their premium line of socks, apparel, and more are colorful. They're well-constructed. They're made from innovative materials, and they are built to last. Throw in an all-star collection of A-list collaborators and those lucky recipients on your nice list this year have never had it so good. I ordered some complimentary products from the Stance website. They were nice enough to offer that to me. I got myself some very cool socks featuring designs from Pixar movies like The Incredibles and my favorite show, The Office. And yes, I'm showing off my affection for a TV show and some movies that I happen to be fond of, but uh, they're practical. They're durable. They're also super comfortable. So it's a win-win. Stance is the perfect gift for every punk and poet on your list. I like that. See for yourself. Just head on over to stance.com and pick out some styles you think they might like. Enjoy the color and comfort of a life less ordinary with Stance. Okay, listeners, you guys have heard me and Gilbert sing the praises of a sponsor called StoryWorth, S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H, before. Now, this holiday season, if you want to give your loved ones a truly unique and personal gift that makes them feel special, just like the relationship you share, think about the gift of StoryWorth. And once again, here's how it works. StoryWorth is an online service that helps you and your loved ones preserve memories and stories for years to come. Every week, StoryWorth emails your relative or friend a thought-provoking question of your choice from their vast pool of possible options. Each unique prompt asks questions you've never thought to ask your loved one, like, I don't know, what's the bravest thing you've ever done in your life? Or if you could see into the future, what would you want to find out? Those kind of things. After one year, StoryWorth compiles all your loved one's stories and answers to the questions, including photos, into a beautiful keepsake book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. Now, as I've mentioned here, I tried this out with my mom and I learned very interesting things that I never knew about her, like how she learned to ride a bike, which she never told me that she taught herself, actually, or the time she ran out of a movie theater when she was 10 because an actor dressed as the Frankenstein monster came lumbering out on stage and she was terrified. And honestly, if not for story worth prompting me to ask her those things, 
I would never have known those stories. And that's how it works. These weekly stories help connect you and your loved ones, no matter how near or far apart you are. So with StoryWorth, you'll be giving those you love most a thoughtful, personal gift from the heart. And as I said, preserving those memories and those stories for decades. So try it out. Go to StoryWorth.com slash Gilbert and save 10 bucks off your first purchase. That's StoryWorth.com slash Gilbert to save $10 off your first purchase on StoryWorth. A truly unique Christmas gift. Your father, they used to call him Sparky. Yeah, named after Sparkplug. He was named very early from an uncle after the dogs, after the, the horse Sparkplug uh, in the early comic strips. It oh, meant, from meant Barney to be a cartoonist Google. in the way. Yeah, Barney Google. Barney Google, yeah. yeah. Seems, oh, seems like be, fate. Before I forget, now that makes me remember, Barney Google, the comic strip, they made a song out of it. And it was... Barney Google with the Google googly eyes. I Barney Google had a wife three times his size. <laughs> Barney Google, st- his wife sued him for divorce. Now he's living with his horse. Barney Google with the Google googly eyes. Somebody watched too much television. Yes. Yeah. WPIX yes. in New York growing up. You know, I'm watching the Christmas special talking about uh, neuroses, Craig and, and, and Chip and, you know, and the examined life. Clearly, he was a man interested in, psychi- in psychiatry, psychology. I'm watching the, the Charlie Brown special. And, you know, I, I've seen it so many times. It's hard to see it with fresh eyes. But you realize Five minutes into this thing, this, that she's in the psychiatric booth and she's running down a list of his potential phobias. I mean, this is like no other children's Christmas special you can imagine. In 1964. I mean, 19, yeah, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Well, I think that's what he did. His, his genius was really looking at something that you and I would look at straight on. And he would go around the corner, take a, a view at the same thing and be able to twist it into something very interesting. You know that whole psychiatric with plant, you know, played off the obviously the children's lemonade stands, and he thought it wouldn't be funny rather than a lemonade stand that this little kid does a psychiatric booth. And the same thing that happened with um, Pumpkin, you know, good, um, your great Pumpkin Charlie Brown. You know, he kept thinking, wouldn't it be funny if a kid got the holidays confused and thought that Halloween was the same as Christmas? That someone's going to bring all the presents to us on Halloween? It was a simple idea like that. A lot of people have taken you know, the Halloween special and turn it into some kind of analogy about the return of Jesus and, and these religious overtones to it. But, but most of the ideas were kind of a very simple twist on what one person would look at and he would look at it from a different angle. Hmm. And, and I think it's funny getting back to that happiness and something bad. I think in one comic strip, he said, Charlie Brown uh, says something that he's feeling happy today. And then he f- he falls off his chair. <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I was reading an interview. Uh, oh, I, was, I, was, I watched that wonderful Dick Cavett interview. I sent it to you, Chip. Yes. Too. And, and it, it, it was fascinating that these characters, the, the daily grind of that strip, where Cavett said, how, how often are you thinking about these things? How much time do you spend thinking about these things? He didn't ha- really have the luxury of not thinking about those characters. Yeah. He said, they're in my mind 24-7. Because um, the immense pressure, I, I don't think any of us can imagine it, of, of having to produce something original every day, five days a week. 
for 50 years. For 50 Non-stop. And as, as I started to say before, without help, without input, Craig, he wasn't one to take ideas, was he? Suggestions. No, you, you know, when you look back on that again, 50 years of nonstop comic strips, again, people, what people don't realize, too, is that every time you take a vacation, every time you go to see a, a Giants game, every time you do something, you're going backwards. You know, he would typically stay about four or five weeks out with the dailies and maybe a month or so out, you know, with the Sunday strip. Mm-hmm. But again, you go on a two-week vacation, and now you're behind, you're behind, the, behind the thing. And he considered himself, you know, the utmost professional. He was never going to be late to deliver a strip to the syndicate. So, you know, his, you hear the term, you know, writer's block and so forth. He never believed in writer's block. But the advantage for him was that he had a, a full keyboard. You know, it's like 88 keys on there. He could, he could pick any number of characters to create stories. And he, and again, most of his life, he spent observing people. So he always had a notepad in the car. He always had a notepad by his bed. And whenever he would see somebody do something stupid or whatever, invariably it would, it would create a strip. You know, if he went to see a tennis player or whatever, you know, any kind of sporting event ideas would pop up. He, he just had a way of doing that. What a fascinating and, way to go through life. Mm. Early on when he was like, uh, a struggling artist, he would go to a bunch of places each day. He would set out to uh, show his work and he was getting constant rejection. But he said that he, he just never let it get him down. Yeah. He, I think he had great faith in, in his ability and he knew eventually he would sell that comic strip, but he, he struggled. People don't realize how much he did struggle in the early years Gilbert, you know, he went out there, he sold single panels to the, mm-hmm. to the post, and he would send these things in to all the magazines, you know, and he was typically sending out three or four things every single day. He would just produce, 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 send them out, send them out, send them out. And then he, to, to, to me, I can't even fathom him getting on a train, because after knowing him, <laughs> get on a train in Minnesota, ride the train to New York or Chicago, go up to these offices to try to sell the comic strip. You know, in the end, he was so much of a homebody, didn't like to travel and so forth, and, and, it's it i just it's incomprehensible to me that he would actually i've seen him trying to do that i can't i can't imagine him doing that because it was such a struggle and then when he did sell the strip you know it only went in seven newspapers it took five or six years to even take off um so he was he was lucky it could have failed chip in your in your books you know you're you're not only tracking the de- the development of of the strip but you're de- you're tracking uh, the, the the development of the man and 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 his his psychology mm-hmm. and his con- you can see his confidence growing as an artist through through the course of in both books in both of your art of uh, of Charles M Schultz books you really get a sense that, that of a guy coming into his own over time uh abso- absolutely i think um developing uh, as an illustrator too developing his hand in in both books i was granted access and and by the way thank you craig and thanks to to you know all of you at the peanuts for letting me you know see and chronicle all this stuff but in in both books um i was granted access to sketchbooks that he kept when he was in the army and in world war ii mm-hmm. and uh there were there were Two main ones. So in the one book, I focused on on the one army sketchbook, which he, which he titled as, as You Were, or As We Were. And then there was another one. Uh, as We Were was really about his boot camp 
um, experience. And then the other one was you're in Germany, um, and 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 they're 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 very good and they're very interesting, but they're not. He he, he some when he left the army and went into art instruction Inc. Then he turned a corner artistically, and the the drawings just got better. And then he got this idea about little kids that were sort of behaving like adults. Mm-hmm. And he loved to play bridge, so these little kids were playing bridge in little folks, and it was—it's just so kind of remarkable, um, you know, what five-year-old plays bridge. Uh, but there they are, and <clears throat> and so he turned a corner from the army sketchbooks to little folks, and then from little folks then to to peanuts, um, and then. And then it and then it really grows throughout the fifties. Um, I mean, he was quoted as saying, "Like, I think." And Craig, you can correct me, but um, like the fifties for him was was a real sort of period of experimentation. And I think he would have rather that people sort of ignored that <laughs> once once he got into the nineteen sixties. And the and the the strip really really then came into its own and and really changed and. And and Snoopy wasn't just a little puppy anymore. He was walking upright and had thoughts and and uh, all this. And um, but it, it's just so fascinating to see it. It to, is to, to it see is. the whole thing evolve and and to see you, you, him evolve. And, yeah, and you and, see those strips in the early '60s. You really see him coming into his own. You really see the the, the comedic voice. Yeah, s- start start to develop. And and the and as I said, the confidence of the artist. Everything kind of coalesces. Yeah, and, yeah. and things go from a three-quarter perspective then to strictly two-dimensional, mm-hmm. uh, which is which was so powerful um, and so simple. But uh, but yeah, it's there's all different kinds of ways of looking at it. And Frank and I have discussed on the show a couple of times uh, the death of movie theaters. Like that seems like a thing of the past. The movie theater. And uh, are comic strips gone? Are they dead now? Well, or certainly, uh, you mean endangered? In a, you mean in a newspaper? Yeah, yeah. I think he means yeah, yeah. daily strips. Yeah, I think the industry has changed tremendously. You know, when <clears throat> it's hard to believe, but in the early 1920s, um, one of the gar- famous cartoonists, um, I think it was Percy, he ended up make, he was making like a million dollars a year doing the cartoons. So when my dad started. The newspapers had four or five people running around the country all the time selling news, telling his comic strip to each of these newspapers. It was a, mm-hmm. the, the comic strips sold the newspapers. It was a very, very big thing, you know. And, and now, obviously, you, know, you can get them online and so forth, but but they sort of disappeared because it's almost like you know kids don't read anymore. And that was one of the things that drove us to create the Peanuts movie was trying to get trying to have something that would drive kids back to the comic strip. And we considered, you know, the movie, basically the rock in the pond and the ripple effect was going to be that would drive people back to read those comic strips and stuff. Um, one kind of funny story I'd like to bring up is, you know, when you talk about a classic Charlie Brown moment, my dad used to drive a lot of the neighborhood kids to our local school. And this was in the early 60s. So one, one day, one of his friends, who was one of the teachers at school, said, you know, Sparky, why don't you come in and, like, give a talk to the kids at the school? So... He'd been as generous with his time as he was. He goes to school and gets up on the chalkboard and does his whole talk, talk on peanuts and draws some characters. And at the end of it, he asks, does anyone have any questions? And one little girl raises her hand and says, 
can you draw Mickey Mouse? Did he oblige her? <laughs> yeah, he actually could draw me. And it's funny because it's funny, thinking back on that was, yeah, I mean, obviously I watched him draw the comic strip my whole life, but he was on a, we were on a raft trip one time. He was going down the Colorado River doing research for one of the TV specials. And in the evening he would sit down, he would sketch the area he was at. And I remember he brought the, he brought the pictures back that he had sketched and I look at him and I was like, I mean, I was like blown away going, wow, I mean, you can actually draw. I mean, it was, my daughter's <laughs> a fine artist. And I was, I mean, just, literally I was blown away thinking he can actually draw because uh, he used to see the characters. And, and now as I get older, I can appreciate and I, and I study the line work more than I ever did in the past. You know, now I, I, I see these things come up and I just, I literally look at the lines and study them and see how he drew these things and, and what an immense talent he was just in the art of drawing them. You know, I mean, the strip itself was unique in the fact that between the drawings and the, and the text and the context and the emotion, but the artwork is an is example that should be studied in any college mm-hmm. art class because mm-hmm. it truly is a study in abstract art. Chip, Chip's books give a, 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 open up a good window into that. You really do see some of his illustrations, his non-Peanuts illustrations. Yeah. Serious illustrations. I mean, portraits, too. Yes, and 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 when he would occasionally go uh, on like a vacation to Europe and um, you know try to draw a landscape in the south of France or or what have you and and yeah he was he was great he was really good at it. So and, let's circle back to the peanut the the uh, the, the Christmas special since it is Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, Gilbert, I know you're interested in this, and we talked about this on the phone, and that was the uh, the groundbreaking decision to have Linus read a biblical passage. Yes, which among other things about that special is so uh, is so innovative is so is so for the time uh, uh, bold. I think it would yeah, be. Well, I think it would be bold now. Yes, it would be bold now. Fifty-five years later. Well, there, yeah, there are many things that are bold in that that show. Obviously, the, the soundtrack, the, the lack of laugh track, and then the yeah, and then the, the quoting from the Bible at the end. It's, it's, it's or funny the, de- had, the decision to have uh, uh, children uh, uh, perform the voices. And then, yeah, which and was, that was not, unheard not of. being done at the time. That was unheard of at the time. It was, it was interesting. Just they had to do it so quickly. I remember Bill Melendez telling me these stories because Bill was somebody. If you ever never met Bill, he was one of those few people that you would never, ever forget. You know, some, I mean, I was a kid. I was 13 years old. But I've never forgot my early days with Bill. He was, he was tremendous. But he tells a story about, you know, they finished the animation up. They did, they did the run through of the show. And Bill leans over to his staff. He says, we've killed peanuts. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and one of the animators in the background was leaning back after drinking a couple of drinks. And he yells out. This show will play for fifty years. Mm. So they, so they, they run it by the Coca Cola executives, and the executive looks at the thing. And it was a week before airtime. They already had the, they already had the time slot booked. He says, "You know, this show is too slow. I don't like the music. I think this, but you know, we're locked in. We're gonna have to, we're gonna have to show this thing, even though I hate it. We're gonna have to show it." So they they'd run the show on the air. Because the forty eight chair back when they only had three channels, but basically half the country was watching Charlie Brown Christmas. The exec calls Lee up. He says, I want you to know, my wife hated it too. <laughs> <laughs> Chip, talk, talk about how, how also how controversial it was. And again, I'll use the word bold. 
to even make a kid's special about the commercialism of Christmas. It's amazing. There's just so many things that are so We take it for amazing. granted now. We take it for granted now. Yeah. Nobody had really articulated that in pop culture before. No, no. And, and, and of course, the, it's the fact that like Soup, Snoopy's completely sold out uh, to to win the decoration contest and yes. uh, the Charlie Brown's heart is in the right place. But I remember watching hit Charlie Brown going into to to get the Christmas tree, and there's all these aluminum trees, and he bangs on them, and they yes. make metal noise. And yes. I'm like, what is that? Like, I didn't even know what that was. As a kid, like that's so strange. I had an aluminum Christmas tree, so I related to that. <laughs> we had a silver aluminum Christmas tree, basically made out of the stuff the tinsel is made out of, and a and a color wheel, a plastic color wheel with a bulb behind it. Classic. So when I I remember seeing that scene as a kid and it resonating. And I remember, like when I was a kid, there was that cartoon or a. Yeah. Uh, called Davy and Goliath. Oh, my God, yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, Davy and Goliath would have him lost in a park or whatever, and then they'd always get to that part, well, you know, God always knows where you are, Davy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, I got, and that part would always make me really uncomfortable. Yes. And yet in the... Charlie Brown Christmas special, it works. Oh, it's done. It's done yeah, so artfully. It's, yeah, because it, it's so it's so different. It's it's it, it's it's like poetry, as a as opposed to you know, be careful because God's watching all the time. It's it's like no and and low unto the shepherds and it's just it's, it's so un, it's so underplayed so yes, beautifully as so opposed to sermonizing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I mean, Craig, when when as the story goes, Melendez, possibly Lee Mendelssohn as well, who, who we should mention, uh, pushed back a little bit on, on the idea. And the legend of, of it is, and I hope it's true, that your father said what? He says, well, if we don't do it, who will? And that came, that dealt with uh, the line from the Bible. Yeah. Um, so he was. Yeah, he was doing that. And, and I remember. uh I think Lee was the one that pushed back on my when my dad had the idea of putting rocks in the bag during that during the uh, pumpkin show. He said, "Let's oh, put okay. a rock in the bag," and and Bill <laughs> goes, "Well, maybe we'll put one in there." And my dad says, "No, no, let's let's put one in. every time he gets thing. We'll put a rock in the bag." And uh, brilliant, yeah. So they had I in in fifty years of putting shows on. Really, Lee and my dad had almost zero fights. Oh, it's a um, nice story too—the story of the collaboration of these three men over time. Amazing. Yeah, well, that goes back to showing the, the loyalty my dad has. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, he's he's stuck with the same people for years and years and years as long as he could, as long as he could. He wasn't one to experiment and change talent unless he absolutely had to. Like, I mean, for example, after the loss of Garaldi, then he had to bring in new people to the scores. But uh, you know, there are some trivia points to the Christmas special that I'm sure Chip probably knows about, but I don't know if you guys do. You know, in the original Christmas special, when you see Linus slide across the ice in the opening sequence and slams mm-hmm. into the snow. Something is now cut out of that show. You have any idea what that oh, is? Oh, it's a Coca-Cola thing. Coca-Cola thing. And Coca-Cola was at the end of the show in the ending credits, too. There was Coca-Cola mentioned at the end of it. Huh. And our local Coca-Cola bottler was such a fan of the show and of the family that they offered my mom a lifetime supply of Coca-Cola, which <laughs> but she quickly turned down to my disappointment. Wow. That's fun trivia. 
And and also because they use children as the voices, they had that problem because kids would hit a certain age and their voices would change. They'd age out. Yeah. Yeah, they would age out. The, the, the funny thing that happened in, in Christmas was they started off and they were having... Bill was coaching the kids. The kids were so young that they didn't know how to read, so you couldn't give them a script to read, so they had to feed them lines. <laughs> well, Bill was from deep in Mexico, so he started reading the lines. The kids were reading them back, trying to copy Bill. Finally, <laughs> Lee walks in and says, Bill, you got all these kids speaking like Mexicans. <laughs> Craig, when you, when you cast the Peanuts movie, I noticed that there was a concerted effort made to, uh, to find actors who had similar voices. Were you using the Halloween special and the Christmas special primarily as your as your your basis? Absolutely, because yeah. we, the, we, the Charlie Brown character sounded a little bit like Peter Robbins, and the, the the Linus character sounded a little bit like Chris Shea. I think you guys nailed it. Yeah, well, thank you because that that was one of my first things was we had to nail the voices. We actually um, interviewed over a thousand kids from all across the country to come wow. out with those voices. Wow, and. Uh, yeah, I remember being being in the in the casting room where the girl was sitting there, and she had the high hopes of being Lucy. And I didn't want to break the news to her that we'd already cast Lucy, but uh, we had a great cast for that show. The kids were phenomenal, and uh, we were very lucky. But I always, even to this day, I I can I don't want them to send me auditions. I want them to send me them just talking because when I hear them just talking in normal voices, that's what you want. Mm-hmm. These days, there's so many kids or kids kid actors, professional actors. They get on the thing and they overact everything and. It just isn't the same thing as having a kid just talk. Aside from the two actors, Robbins and Shay, doing Linus and Charlie Brown in the, in the Charlie Brown Christmas, were the rest of the the kid actors amateurs? Well, yeah, they actually actually Lee would go into a classroom and have kids talk and literally pick kids out of a classroom wow. and bring them to the mic and have them record. And um, one of my pet peeves throughout the years was, and I asked Lee this later on, he used his kids in quite a few shows. If you look at the, if you look at the credits, you'll see quite a few um, Mendelssohn kids in there. One of them actually played the voice of, of Pepper and Patty and some of the girls. We tease him about that today. But I asked Lee years later, I said, Lee, how come you never asked you know, for any of Sparky's kids to be in these specials? And Lee comes back, because none of you guys could act. Yeah. <laughs> and... and um... I, it, it the funny thing is it's like they use children and yet the children in those cartoons sound like depressed adults. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, Peter Robbins just so captured. I don't know how much direction Men, uh, uh, Melendez and, and Lee gave him, but I, you know, it's, it's, it's the closest thing to me. Do you agree with this chip as a, as a lifelong reader of the strip? To the to the, to what Charlie Brown should sound like. Although Craig, I heard you say that that when you first heard them, you thought I, I have different voices in my head. These are these don't sound like the characters that I that I've been envisioning. I I would be willing to bet that almost everybody did that because you know whenever we read something in a book or whatever, we typically kind of sub vocalize in our minds yeah, what they should sound yes. like. So mm-hmm. I'd been reading that comic strip for years and years, and all of a sudden you, you hear the voices, you go. Well, well, that sure doesn't sound like Charlie Brown. It's been in my head for 10 years now or five years, whatever it was. And, then, and now it's ingrained, obviously. So you know, yeah, they're totally. the gold standard right now. Of course. Peter Roberts was the gold standard. You know, yeah. it, it's funny. Like whenever I read a book and like later on the book, they'll say something like he pushed back his red hair. And I'll think, 
No, no, no. I was fantasizing. Uh, I, I was seeing this character as having uh, black hair. You know, it's like when you read something, you picture the character in your mind. Exactly. Chip, talk about the storytelling in, in a Charlie Brown's Christmas. You know, watching it from the perspective of a writer, uh, uh, you know, you, we, there's a lot said about the economy of, of storytelling in Schultz's uh, strips. Yes. Watching the, watching the Christmas special, uh, and Craig, this is fascinating. You get, you get so much there's story. So much. You get so much story in the first four or five minutes. So much is established. You get Linus's blanket and Lucy's judgment about it. Uh, uh, that Charlie Brown is 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 depressed. That he's that he's disillusioned about Christmas. He doesn't get any Christmas cards in his box. You set up the psychiatric booth. Everything is right there at the outset. What I what I always loved is the utter absurdity of Lucy directing quote the Christmas play, yep. and the Christmas play is a bunch of kids. Dancing to jazz. <laughs> yeah. That's yes, the Christmas yes. play. And she's like, isn't this a great play? And Charlie Brown's like, no, this says <laughs> nothing about Christmas whatsoever. She's like, no, it's great. And then you're what? And and of course, that's that's the thing that animation can do that a that a comic strip can't. It can it introduces movement and time and sound. And yeah. but just it's so absurd. It's so ridiculous. And then it you have the one kid whose head just flops from side to side, which is such a brilliant little Wonderful. gesture. Um, and, and then people throw their arms up. It's like, yay, Christmas. No, that has nothing to do with Christmas. That's it's just so hilarious. Funny. I remember that now so well. Or yep. some of them would be just... Kicking their leg up in yeah. the air. Yeah. It's all very spastic move. <laughs> totally. It's very the storytelling is very artful though and very, very economical. You get and you get Sally is writing the letter to Santa and she's trying to shake him down for cash. Snoopy <laughs> Please enters, send tens and twenties. Right, ten, tens and twenties. You know, again, it's 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 so innovative and it's so uh, uh, gutsy. For a kids show, yeah, to be to be dealing with these these themes, yeah. I, well, I even can... remember as a kid being, uh, you know, as as a child thinking I've never seen anything quite like this. Yeah, yeah. That I think they're... you have to recognize too. The interesting thing is that you know my dad was by no means a screenwriter, mm -hmm. and I actually saw the original. I think I had a copy of the original script for Charlie Brown Christmas in my house before it burned down, and it was literally three pages on a yellow notepad thing telling the story of a child around Christmas, the same thing for Pumpkin. They were very, very simple stories that he had created. And, you know, to collaborate with, you know, Lee and Bill on these things and create a show that, you know, these days would be done obviously much, much more different and professional screenwriting software is amazing in itself. So mm -hmm. he, he was, he was multi-talented between the comic strips and his vision to try to do other things. And he continually did other things. You say he wasn't a writer, and yet I wonder if he knew instinctively, watching the Linus passage, it's, the, it's essentially the climax of the piece. If, if you don't have that, because, because it's Charlie Brown moving through this world looking for the meaning of Christmas, and Linus just says effortlessly, well, if that's all you want to know, I'll tell you the meaning of Christmas, Charlie Brown. Light, if you don't, if you, lights, if you don't, please. Lights, please. And it's so beautifully done. And as you said before, Chip, it's so understated. Mm. But if you don't have that in there, Craig, and maybe uh, your dad knew it instinctively, 
you don't really have anything. You don't have a payoff. You don't have an emotional payoff. No, but there wasn't the point of where he would have thought or, you know, if, if it had been a normal show like today, you would have all these executives coming to you and saying, well, you know, how about the people that don't know who these characters are? You're going to have to create the exposition and, and define who they are. You know, he assumed that everybody knew what the characters were. You know, then they would start saying, well, where's the inciting incident? You have to have an inciting incident. What's the art from this character and that character? And you start to develop it all along those lines of creating mm-hmm. a movie. It becomes a different story. In those days, he had a vision. He knew what he wanted to create, and he did it his way. You know, and he did that through most of the shows. He was really, really, really hands-on on really the, what, what I call the big three, you know, Christmas, pumpkin, and, and Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving yeah. and, and after he makes that whole speech, then all the kids dress up that, like, weak, rotten tree. And yeah. it's, it's, like, beautiful. Because they, <laughs> they, they show uh, before, like, they try to put the star on top, and it makes the whole tree fall over. And but it's that's really a touching moment that the kids dress up that tree. It's very sweet. No, it is. And I asked I asked Lee years later if you actually if you watch the special closely, you'll see his little green tree is sitting there and they keep coming by and Charlie Brown goes by. It starts growing branches, you know. And, and I asked Lee years later, I said, Lee, were you guys doing that purposely so that when Charlie Brown touched the tree, it was kind of having a relationship with Charlie Brown? He goes, No, that just happened with the animators. They just kind of stuck that thing in there. <laughs> and the tree just, the tree just kind of changes. It changes on its own. You know, Chip, I get uh, I get emotional when I'm watching a miracle on 34th Street and they the last shot and they see the Santa's cane leaning against the fireplace. Mm. I get emotional in the last moments of It's a Wonderful Life when when Harry proposes the toast and says to my big brother, George, the richest, the richest man, in man in town. And I get similarly choked up and I watched it again last night when Linus makes that speech. And especially when he says on earth, uh, uh, peace uh, and good, goodwill good to men. men. And, and, and I, 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 all these years later, I've been watching it for 50 years, Craig. I, I I'm still emotional. Well, and it, so is powerful. and so is everybody else. I mean, look at this it whole packs a punch. you know reaction to 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 what just happened. And and people people want to see this on television, and they want to see it, you know, like it's like it's broadcast all over again. It it, it means something to them. It's and it's a ratings winner every year. Like, yeah, they could watch it on DVD, but they don't want to do that. They want to see it on on real TV. To me, the Our, the kicker was always when. Charlie Brown hangs the red bulb on the little tree and it falls over. Yes. And he says, yeah, I've killed it. And he says, oh, I killed it. Uh, everything I touch gets ruined. And then he slinks off. And it's just like, oh, wow. It's almost like uh, the, uh, saying I've killed the tree is almost like Melendez saying we killed peanuts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's so iconic that invariably somewhere across the country, someone will take a tree out and put it by the side of a street with mm-hmm. one red bulb on it. Mm. And it'll sit there. Mm. And then and day by day, invariably, that tree will be decorated and become Charlie Brown's Christmas tree. And it happens every year, someplace. It's, it's the most amazing thing. And it just shows the legacy of this, the powerfulness of this movie, that people are willing to go out and bring these ornaments out to some stray, lone, poor tree it that needs to be decorated. It's oh. taken on its own life. And I got a flashback now. This is going to the Charlie Brown Halloween of the running gag of uh, them like looking at through the Halloween bags going, I got some chocolate. I have some cookies. I got a rock. 
the things that stay with us. Craig, how how pleased was he with the final result? And did the show become a staple in in the in the Schultz household at Christmas? You know, it's you- funny as I look back. I have, I literally have zero recollection of watch of watching that show as a child. I mean, That's I was thirteen and, when yeah. it came out. But you know, I, I think back. You know, we released the Penis movie as a big Hollywood event. We had blimps flying overhead with the Penis movie and thousands of people down there. You know, I think. I think the expectations from the executives at CBS had probably downplayed it in his mind, but I, I don't recall at all any kind of a viewing party for that to come out. You know, we did watch it every year. Mm-hmm. I think his favorite and my favorite, and I think most people agreed that their favorite show was um, the Halloween special because of the vibrant colors. Mm, yeah, the background. The of it. Are and then, then obviously, you know, Snoopy taken to the air was so spectacular there that, uh, that, that, Kind of lings in everybody's mind is kind of the best one ever made. I think. Yeah, I give you credit too. Seeing the movie, I mean, you know, you said it was a risky, uh, it was a risky venture from the beginning, and I, I, you know, kudos to you because you had to tell a new story, but you also had to include nost- plenty of nostalgic moments. You have the ice skating scene uh, that it opens with. There's a lot of Snoopy and and Red Baron stuff. That must have been a difficult compromise. I have a new story to tell. I have new uh, new generations of fans to introduce to this, and yet I have to I have to give a nod to the people of my generation who remember this that way. Yeah, without a doubt, that's that show actually from the beginning, the original concept of it to the end probably took me ten years to get that done. And when you say, you know, was it risky for me? It was terrifying for me on numerous levels. Number one, the family had always said that we would never do a movie. We we didn't ever want to take the risk of doing a bad movie. So in creating this thing, I had, to, I had this scornful look of my brothers and sisters and family members and Jeannie's family and everybody else beyond the fact of the people at Fox and Blue Sky and everybody else. So it was very, very risky to do. And we spent a lot of time, a lot of heart trying to get what we need to. And then again, you're dealing with the classic things everybody wants to hear. They want to hear the Garaldi music. They want to see yeah, that's what I fly. Mean. Yeah, yeah it, it was really a tough balance to get all that in there and still tell a new story. Well, you did it's a beautiful really, job. Yeah, it's oh, beautiful be- and beautiful to look at. And I told you those, we talked on the phone. I told you those flying scenes, the world, the, the flying ace scenes are a- absolutely breathtaking. It's like an amusement park ride. It takes you somewhere. Well, it does. And for me, you know, the, the beginning sequence that we came up with where you actually, you literally go into the comic strip, you live in the comic strip for the hour and 20 minutes. And every time, I remember the first couple of times I screened it in my home theater when, when, when they go from animation to my dad's hand drawing thing of the kids, and then the script Schultz comes across the screen, I would just be bawling in tears. It was so emotional. To I, see can mm. I can imagine. I can imagine. I want to ask too about uh, about the um, the lifelong collaboration, not lifelong, but many years that 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 Mendelssohn and and uh, and Bill Melendez and your dad stayed together. You, your your dad couldn't imagine working with other people and doing it differently. No, he, he, he I mean, like I said, I was telling about Bill, you know, how unforgettable Bill was. Bill was someone you'd never forget. And my dad loved going down and hanging out with Bill in LA and we would go out and shoot guns. And it's, and it's interesting because I remember when I went down there, I was, I don't know, 13, 14 years old. And Bill said, Craig, today we go shoot. And he took me out. <laughs> And Bill had a collection. He had a collection of like over a thousand guns. He had guns from the Revolutionary War, Civil War, wow. all these things. So, so we go out, we sh- we're shooting uh, shotguns at clay pigeons and stuff. And Bill was a tremendous shot. He, I think he shot like 24 out of 25 
And then he took me and says, Greg, now we will go have root beer freezes. And <laughs> I have never, ever forgotten that day going to get in a root beer freeze with Bill. And to this day, I still order root beer freeze. And every time I, I order one, I think of Bill. He's, he's just something that somebody just stuck with me for a lifetime. That's I miss great. him tremendously. Are you in that documentary that, that, uh, that your dad made with, uh, with Mendelssohn in 63? Yeah, playing? I'm sitting there in the back of the, uh, of the station wagon with all the other kids. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's the other interesting thing that I kind of hold. Not only did I not get to be the voice in any, any of the shows, but of all the kids in the family and all the friends, I'm the only kid that never got his name in the comic strip. I don't know why. It wasn't, it wasn't like I'm that bad. What's that about? But I, and, ne- <laughs> I never got my name in there. And, uh, yeah. And your father said that he thought James Thurber was a great artist. Because mm-hmm. he said, like, you know, it's different that there are some cartoonists who are not great artists, but it just uh, comes across the feeling of it. Hmm. Yeah, I think cartooning changed. I mean, yeah, he he grew up in the era of the big, elaborate cartoon strips where, you know, if it was they were drawing they were, every panel was a huge work of art. Terry and the Pirates and, and yeah, the Phantom like, and then, George Harriman. And then yeah. And then when he came around and, and he did his, you know, super simplistic strips and like I said, we got in the sixties, like Chip said, all of a sudden he became the minimalist and everything disappeared and the perspectives changed and so forth. And from that day on, literally every cartoonist, you know, will say they owe a bid of congrats to my dad because he, influ- he influenced their comic strips and the comic strips have changed ever since. And again, there's some people, I knew, you know, Stefan Passes, for example, co-wrote a, a peanut special with me. And he admits that he, he literally can't draw, you know, in, in Pearls Before Swine. He goes, I can't draw, but but he has great little stories to tell. So I think the cartoon industry has changed quite a bit. And I remember there was a comic strip that was a total satire on Dick Tracy and I think it was called Fearless, Fearless Fosdick. Yes. Oh, Fearless very good, Fosdick. guys. Very good. Very it was, good. And that was Al Cap and Little Abner. Very, very good. Wow. Our friend Mark Evanier said, I saw, I was watching a documentary. He said, Craig, he would have loved to have seen the looks on the faces of those CBS executives. Yeah. <laughs> Such a great story. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor. I'm sure you all recognize that lovely melody, Call of the Faraway Hills, from the classic film Shane. But did you know that film star was rumored to indulge in a particular chicken fetish? So many great stars of yesteryear have been immortalized on the amazing Colossal podcast. And now, the good people at AmazingColossalMerch.com have gathered together an indispensable collection of must-have merchandise and memorabilia, celebrating some of the program's best-loved catchphrases and celebrity urban legends. You'll get... The Hollywood Rumor Orange Wedge Magnet and Protective Mask. The Chico Needed the Money Collectible Enamel Pin. The Hollywood Rumor Horny Chimpanzee Magnet. The Hollywood Rumor Hookah Helicopter Magnet. The Found Dead in His Hollywood Apartment Collectible Enamel Pin. 
and much more. Ah, these items are priceless companions to the podcast that will enrich every home. But there's a great deal more. You can also get our amazing Colossal Secret Society membership kit, including membership card and accompanying sexy chicken button. You've simply got to have it. Yes, here's a unique opportunity to own a complete collection of the world's most exclusive and original podcast merchandise. But these items are not available in stores, so order now at AmazingColossalMerch.com. Chip, in, in, in getting into uh, uh, this and in, in getting access to the families, uh, uh, to the library and the archives back in 2000 and, and doing these two wonderful books, and there's another new book coming out. Tell us about that. Well, I mean, <clears throat> the, the new book is, is really just, uh, a, it's an offshoot of, of the second book, um, Only What's Necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and... Uh, it was proposed to my friend Charlie Kochman at Abrams. Uh, we hey, love Charlie. Love him. And it, and it was, let's, you know, let's do a book of Peanuts posters. And so we then got permission to do it in the style of the only what's necessary book. So, I mean, you have lots of classic stuff in there, but then they let us do a poster based on the Viewmaster reels. Wow. Uh, which I have to say, like, Craig, your movie reminded me of the Viewmaster reels, which is, like, to me, the highest compliment. <laughs> what a nice thing. Yeah. Well, Chip, you yeah. should speak. I think Chip should speak to the fact of the, of the strips he tracked down because, you know, you think, okay, 50, 50 years of comic strips, Chip, he got them all in all the books. Yeah. They were not easy to find. No. You ended up having to find some really rare lost comics. I still don't know how you, how you even did it. But can you speak to that? Um, yeah. I mean, a big part of that was my... Dear friend Chris Ware, cartoonist Chris Ware, and he he managed to buy on eBay in the what in the late nineteen nineties um, when that was you know still a new thing. Somebody had collected the strip physically from the very beginning for about four or five years, and Chris bought this thing. And then when I told him I was working on this book he lent it to me and so all the, like the tape marks and all that stuff that that was this person collected all of them from the beginning and where you would see like one of charlie brown's eyes would be missing because the printer thought that it was like a blot on in the <laughs> on the printing plate so they erased it uh yeah just just really Really fascinating. What were the biggest surprises, Chip? I mean, what 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 was the biggest discovery? Well, he um, uh, for you, Schultz. Oh, there's, I mean, there's so many, but for like two Sundays in the mid 1950s, I'd have to look up the year. He experimented with Charlie Brown and Lucy going to a golf tournament, and and. Charlie Brown was going to be Lucy's caddy, and she and she was the one that was going to be the the golfer competing. And it's the only strips where you actually see adults, but you only see them from like the chest down. And um, I mean, it's it's fascinating just because it's so outside of the Peanuts canon. And he obviously 
he tried it and just decided, no, this doesn't work. This doesn't work. The, the, the kids have to stay in their own world and we're, we're, we're not going to see the adults. Um, and they're certainly the, and it's, it, it is kind of like, um, I don't want to say off putting. It's just so odd to see them. There's like this forest of adults mm-hmm. around them on this golf course. And they're, you know, sort of like, you know, totally intimidated and, and out of their element with them. There, but there was there were so many things. So many yeah, there were numerous numerous things that kind of came and went and didn't work. He would experiment with things, and again, in those days, as Chip knows, the 1950s he was experimenting. He really didn't think this trip was going to last necessarily because, in the meantime, he had associates that lived on on the property with us, and he was creating other other comic ships at the same time. He had a teenage comic ship going, and he was doing comic books, and he had other other people working with him, not on not on peanuts. But, you know, with the possibility if penis doesn't go, I got something else I can submit. I think probably one of the most shocking things that I ever heard, and I think this, this happened after my dad passed on as we were talking. And I think it was probably around the time that United Features sold, sold this strip to another company. And around 1972 or so, it was the renegotiation of my dad's contract. And that was a time when he, could, he was trying to get the rights to the characters so he's finally the United, United Features Syndicate, and, he's, and he, he literally threatened. He said, well, what if I just quit drawing the comic strip? And they're, and they're like, well, I don't know. And he, he kind of threw that a couple of times. Well, years years later, and I don't think my dad ever knew this, they had actually hired someone to draw Peanuts. And this guy had drawn like 80 comic strips, and they were ready to go to the press with him if my dad had threatened to quit, mm. you know, during the negotiation period. Wow. And they showed up, and I remember they showed up, and I read about... You know, I read quite a few of them, actually. And they were what you would expect, you know. I mean, the drawings were were sim- simplistic, obviously. But when you looked at the content of it and, and the sophistication of the, of the artwork, it was terrible. It had been a disaster. Um, but they kept that from him. They never told him that they had subvertly gone behind his back and hired a cartoonist to draw his comic strip. That would have, that would have thrown him over the top. Yeah. Wow. You know, another thing Peanuts introduced me to, Chip, and you, you mentioned before, you mentioned absurdity. They introduced me to absurdity and, re- and surrealism. Sure, yeah. And in, your, and in going through the strips in your book, I found one that I had not thought of in a million years, and it's Linus becoming aware of his tongue. Oh, my God. That is <laughs> Which, the... one of my absolute favorite Charlie Brown strips. It's such an amazing concept. Yes. And, like, and, and, of course, then you read that, and then for the next two days, you're trying to wash it out of your head because then you become aware of your tongue. It's just so great. Or, or the fact that Snoopy co- had, a, had a, a fine art collection. Right. But My Van a, Gogh. A, his, Lord, there's My a Van in the doghouse, right? His Van Gogh. It's, uh, it, or, the, or, the, uh, or the strip where they're looking at the cloud formations. Oh, uh, yeah. Which is another, another wonderful uh, uh, strip. I, yeah. I, I look back at it going through uh, Chip's books and, and reconnecting with those old strips and realizing what an effect it had on me. And so many people who tried, who, who tried to make a living being funny. Hmm. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I think not only cartoonists owe, owe him a debt, Craig, but, but so many comedians, so many comedy writers, so many humorists, you know, who, who, uh, who learned timing from those strips. Yeah, the, the the timing of playing out a gag in four panels, and then yeah, he would nice. then he would then he would play with the space too. He would play with the boxes. 
you know, the penmanship where you where, oh, where, yes. where, where they're smearing the ink and write, <laughs> right? writing up writing along up along the side of the panel. He learned over time too to 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 work with that canvas in in creative ways. It's 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 great to look at Chip's books and see that evolution. Well, and I think the other the other fascinating thing is really that you think of you know the commerce of which we kind of associate as nineteen sixties America, but you know the content that goes into the strips and the human human emotions that deal with those things has really been able to resonate worldwide. It doesn't make difference whether you're in Japan, China, South Korea, whatever. They all deal with the same thing: loss, love, humanity. You know, and that's what makes it so timeless because it, it will those those feelings and uh, those feelings of loss and such you know never go away, no matter where you are in the world. Yeah, yeah, it's universal. Now I'm, now I'm getting. Uh... It's just got stuck in my mind, the comic strips. There was Mary Worth, Family Circus, Gasoline Alley, Dundee, and, uh, <laughs> oh, oh, I, the, the, the girl reporter. Brenda, uh, Brenda Starr. Star. Yeah, yeah. I'm just, oh, that's popping back in my head now. <laughs> And Peanuts was always the first one I read when yes. I opened the when I opened the newspaper. If I got a paper, if I was out of town and I got an out of town paper or something, or somebody introduced a new newspaper and there was no Peanuts in the in the comic section, I was crushed. What um, you, you know? You said he he uh, you said he had a difficult time with his with his own celebrity in a way, Craig. But but then this isn't maybe a naive question. H- how aware was he? Uh, of of the worldwide impact, the emotional impact that 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 he was having on millions of readers. Because in the Cavett interview that I dug up, Cavett tells him, you know, you've got several hundred people, several hundred million people reading this strip on a daily basis, and he says that's something best not thought of. Yeah, I don't know. You know, when you hear him talk and the way he acted and so forth, it's like I mean, he had to been aware of the impact. You know, I think. Uh, Lee talks about there was one day in the 1960s when you had X number of hundred million of people reading the comic strip. There was a show on Broadway, the TV special uh, was playing, and there was a movie in the movie theaters. When you totaled up all the number of views and all the penis content on that one day, it was like half the planet was watching something. Yeah, yeah. But he, he was such a humble person, and I think he always knew that it could disappear at, at any moment. You know, when you're a cartoonist, it can be ripped right out of your hands at any second. So I think he appreciated what he got to do. And, and I, you know, it's funny when I look back at it again, I look back at it and study it, you think that, you know, certain people land at a certain time in history. Mm-hmm. And if they landed 10 years either side of that, oh, yeah. it might not have happened. You look at Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, my dad, you know, if, if that comic strip would have come in, you know, 20 years earlier or 20 years later, you know, I don't know that it would have sold, you know. So it, I think it's almost like a destiny thing that certain people are meant to do a certain thing at a certain time. And whether it be luck or whatever you want to call it, it's, it's pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah, it's, I know, I, it's, it's a lot to put on a man who really just wanted to draw a comic strip. But Chip, I think you'd agree with me that, that he's as important an artist in the 20th century as, as Walt Disney. He's as important a humorist well, as, as, as Mark Twain. Well, absolutely, no question. And, and what I continually try to remind people is b- between Schultz and Disney, uh, I mean, obviously, Disney's a great figure. But after the first couple of years, I mean, he was not drawing <laughs> Mickey Mouse anymore. He was running an empire. And Schultz was a hand-on artist who hand-drew over 18,000 
comic strips and wrote them and and he was he was the hands-on you know creator who made this universe literally not you know it was it was his hands paper ink and a pen he made it all out of that uh disney had <laughs> casts of thousands to 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 do his bidding and there's nothing wrong with that but it but they're different um yeah, it's it's just yeah. I don't think you can, I don't think you can compare them. No, to I, I agree. Disney was Disney was an absolute visionary. The stuff he created, and you go to, you go to his museum and see what he created as far as film and his vision and what he was going to do. It's reminiscent more of Steve Jobs. You know, people look at Steve Jobs what he did, but right. he didn't actually make all the pieces for those computers and all those different things. He found people to do them. He put him stuck his name on the thing, right? And he gets the credit for it all. But you know, it's the same way Disney. Well, I want to I want to I want to read this passage, uh, Chip, that you close the second book with, which I found beautiful. The contributions to American and world culture uh, by Charles M. Schultz are happily incalculable. It's simply impossible to know how many lives he touched, smiles he brought, spirits he raised, hearts he uplifted, or artists he inspired. But we know that he did it all using only his mind, ink, some pens, and seventeen thousand eight hundred and ninety-seven pieces of paper. He made all of that out of nothing and out of nothing. He made everything. It's quite beautiful and quite accurate. Well, it's, it's all true. (laughs) That's the amazing thing. It's all true. I mean, you know, the simplicity of it. And the more I, I, the more I, I peel away the, 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 the layers of the onion, Craig, and I learn more about your dad that he, you know, he just wanted to draw. He just wanted, he just wanted the daily discipline he just thought that having a comic strip was the greatest thing in the world. And all of these other things that happened, the fame and the merchandising and the, and the, and the television shows and the movies and the world that was created seems uh, quite accidental. Yeah, I think you sum it up right. And, and that wasn't that important to him. And not, not that important was, to him, uh, uh, ironically. Strip and stuff. Yeah. But it was, it, it did influence his life. Luckily, he was, he was sort of an unknown celebrity for the most part. You know, if you would go somewhere, it wasn't like, you know, a Hollywood star walking down the street where people would flock to you and ask you for your autograph and so forth. But invariably, I remember we were watching World Team Tennis with Billie Jean King one time and he's sitting in the stands, you know, and you see eventually one person looks over and says, you you can hear him whisper, I think that's Charles Schultz. And then somebody will be bold enough to come down with a piece of paper. And once he signed one autograph, of course, that was it. Then into the wedge, yeah. Yeah, it would ruin the whole tennis match. On the other hand, he could cash in. I mean, that's a funny story. He takes us over to uh, England to watch Wimbledon. So I think the whole family flew over first class to Wimbledon. We get in, we get on the grounds and everybody's getting ready to play. And we go, dad, where are the tickets? He goes, I don't have any. So what do you mean I have the tickets? We're at Wimbledon. John, John McEnroe's over there. And he goes, we'll just, we'll just go to the player's lounge and stand by. So he set the player's lounge and all of a sudden Billie Jean comes, King comes by and he goes, oh, Sparky, come on upstairs. <laughs> and he starts getting, she starts introducing everybody, and in no, in no time, he's handed all these tickets to all the different matches and stuff, and we're like, we're like in, and uh, and that's what you know his celebrity and his ability to to draw, and this, and once they get recognized, you know, the world would open up for him. But he but he wasn't one to kind of push his celebrity on anybody. Yeah, it's fascinating in a way. There's a there's a gentleman who listens to this show, Craig, named B. W. Radley. He says he's from your hometown. 
Craig and his family have lived near my hometown for years. His dad and stepmother were neighbors of my uh, my ex-brother-in-law. He remembers, he has a memory, he wants to know if you remember this, of Peggy Fleming and the Vince Guaraldi trio showing up at one of the, uh, at the ice rink. Oh, yeah. Does that ring Absolutely. a bell? Yeah, we had Peggy, you know, the ice rink opened in 1969. And then in the early 60s, the local ice rink had got condemned because of water damage. So my mom was sitting in bed with my dad one night and she says, you know, we need to give Santa Rosa kids an ice arena. And my dad agreed to do that. And they built what be- what became the Redwood Empire Ice Arena. And in 1969, we had Peggy Fleming, who was the Olympic champion, come in, in opening ceremonies. And we've still seen her to this day. She comes in and we'll see her every now and then. And Geraldi played and, and we've wow. had Bill Cosby. We had Liberace. We've had, I mean, all the great entertainers played at the ice arena. I'm reminded of, of Snoopy's crush on Peggy Fleming. The, <laughs> yeah, it, and that's it, why. In the, in the, would, in the it's strip. It's funny you mentioned that. Like, whenever you wanted to meet a celebrity, and this is what he did with Billion King, he would put their name in the comic strip, and invariably they would contact him. So if there was somebody he wanted to meet, he'd slip the name in the comic strip, and then he would wait for the phone call to come up. Oh, thank you for putting my name in the comic strip. <laughs> that's great. Gilbert, you've got to steal that. Put somebody in your act yeah, that you want to meet. Sure. <laughs> Craig, what is what is life like for you now? Uh, you you're, you're involved. Uh, t- tell us about your your duties and your responsibilities with Creative Associates, and and you oversee a lot. You oversee the ice rink and 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 many peanuts related projects in in Santa Rosa. Yes, you know, sadly, my my career was in aviation. Basically, as a flight instructor, I had my own um, air taxi service, and I flew my dad's private jet um, whenever he wanted to go somewhere, whether it be business or golf or whatever else. And, you know, my career ended when he passed in 2000. Um, so then the family got together and we decided, you know, who was going to oversee this company. And since I was the only one in Santa Rosa, the rest of them lived out of the area, I would kind of oversee it and pass on to them that sort of stuff. So myself and Jeannie, dad's, you know, wife, we collaborated on the oversight for the thing. And as years went by, we, I did a lot of different peanuts projects for fundraisers, stuff around the community and trying to, you know, keep it in the spotlight. Mm-hmm. And that's when the idea for the movie came up and my son had just graduated from film school and he had, he had sold a film to uh, Spielberg and, and, and so forth. And I approached him with the idea. I said, Hey, what do you think of this idea for film? And he said, well, dad, you need to do this, 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 this. I was a little off on it. So I said, would you want to collaborate? So him and his writing partner, Neil Liliano came up and I paid them for a month to sit down and try to create this story, which we did. And then we approached, you know, Fox and, uh, and sold it to him. And again, that was the intent of just trying to get peanuts out there, try to drive people to the strip and, and get them to read. And I think it I think it did a lot of that. It really kind of reinvigorated it in Japan. And Japan was always our, our biggest market. Mm-hmm. And there's a huge resurgence in Japan. Um, and now it's starting to take over in China. So I didn't want the I didn't want the comic strip to end up as nothing more than a simple t-shirt. And that's kind of the direction it was going. We just had something characters on t-shirts. And I was so disillusioned of that because my dad had written so many bits of genius in that conversation over 50 years. And for people not to read that was just disheartening to me. So whatever I can do to drive them back to the comic strip and get them to read it, that's my objective. That's a good one. Well, congratulations. I think seeing how much the movie made and how popular it was, I think you've achieved it. Well, you're doing other projects. Like I'm reading about these things, the Christmas, the Christmas tree drove and uh, Grove, excuse me, and peanuts on parade and Outdoor movie and Halloween events. You're organizing regular Peanuts related events. I mean, obviously not in COVID, but when this yeah, when this, when this thing anymore. finally lifts. No, you know, my dad he put on a on probably what was 
kind of named the kind of the greatest ice show ever in the ice rink every Christmas. He would have some of the top Olympic athletes come and the top entertainers in ice skating, and we put on a show for like a month. Well, after he died, you know, we kept hearing, you know, when are you going to bring back the ice show? When are you going to bring back the ice show? Well, he had the budget to do the ice show. I don't have the budget to do the ice show. So my wife and I decided, why don't we give back to the community? Let's create these special events that are free to everybody in the community. So we had, like on Halloween, we had, well, Lee came up and spoke. We set up a big screen outdoors, and people would watch the Great Pumpkin on the big screen outdoors. Oh, fun. And we had a trick-or-treat trail. And then we had a big Easter egg hunt. You know, during Easter, and we had a Valentine's celebration day in the ice where people come, you know, with their dates and skate and, and chocolate and everything else and, and you know, reinvigorate their love. So we did a lot of that for, you know, 10 or 15 years for the community. And they were nice because you'd see people literally, uh, people would come down the street and they put their hands on the fence. They're looking through the fence and they say, what's going on? And you say, well, you can go in. That's free to go in. And they go, well, I got to go home and tell my mom that. And they'd run home and bring their parents down. They would come in and sit down and watch the show. So it was nice to to give back to the community. Um, it's nice to keep all this alive. And and tell us, I, I assume the Schultz Museum is is not operating during COVID, but but will will reopen at some point. Yeah, and, it definitely will open at some point. Sadly, it is sort of shut down. They kind of limited X number of people for a while, but just as of tomorrow night, we're shut down for another four weeks. So mm-hmm. so everything we open has to close. You know, the ice arena. Yeah. You know, we, we opened it back up and then it shut down. So we melted the ice and we put the ice back up and now we've got to shut it down again. Mm. So that's been a very frustrating, frustrating thing. People should read about the museum. They can go on the website and learn about it and learn about everything they can see there. And, and as I say, when this, when this chaos uh, f- finally passes, people who love peanuts and love Schultz should go. The museum is absolutely beautiful. It's, it's so, it's so well done. It's, it's just the best. The thing is, it's, I think what's interesting is you actually get to go and see the comic strips the way they were drawn. Because when the reality of it is, and this is what's so disheartening to my dad compared to a regular an artist or a fine artist, is a typical comic strip would be taken from its original size, which is probably, you know, eight by eight in each panel, sent to the newspaper, printed on the cheapest quality newspaper you could ever come up with, shrunk down to one inch by one inch, and the average person read it for like four seconds, and then it ended up at the bottom of a birdcage. You know, if you're an artist, that's probably the most insulting thing you can ever do with a piece of art you've created. So when you go to the, the museum and you literally see the artwork he created and you can see the pencil lines before he put the ink down in the, full, in the full scope of it all, you really start to appreciate his ability to do these things. And uh, yeah, again, I watched him for years and years and years. He used India ink. And I don't think I ever saw him splatter India ink the way Charlie Brown does when he's writing his letters out. Of <laughs> his letters out of his I love that one. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was amazing. And your father had feelings about how cartooning was never considered an art form, like when you went to a museum. Yeah, absolutely. He, he always kind of create, felt as it was beneath him as far as, you know, comparing it to a true artist and so forth. Um, I think he's changed that perception, though. Uh, absolutely. Now. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, as I For said, him he's... to be in the Louvre, number one, was uh, the highlight of his career, I think that. I think the other highlight of his career is to take Peanuts and put it in outer space. You know, at one point, on um, the Apollo 10 mission, the mission before we landed on, on the moon, you know, there was a capsule called Snoopy and one called Charlie Brown. If you listen to the old tape, you know, it's like you hear them literally say that. So when you think of NASA... And this is like just mind-blowing to me. Think of NASA in the 1960s and they asked the astronauts, what do you want to call your capsule? 
and they could deal with you know biblical things, mythology, history, any number of thousands of terms you come up with, and they decide they want to call their capsule a lunar lander, Snoopy and Charlie Brown. If that isn't like the highest honor you could ever get in your lifetime, I don't know what is. How wonderful. I think it undersells him in a way, too, just to refer to him as a cartoonist. As I said before, and one of the great humorists of our time. Of, oh, absolutely. Of, of, of the 20th century. Well, and, and authors. And authors and storytellers. <laughs> you know, Chip, uh, and I hope both of these books, we had John to talk about the Batman book. Sadly, one of them was was uh, was out of print. Uh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna hope that I'm gonna hope that both of your that we're we're not a video podcast, but the books are visible behind Chip on on his shelf. I'm gonna hope that these books are still in print and still available. So let's let's by all means promote them. Uh, well, yes. So um, the the two latest uh, Peanuts books it's the one's called Only What's Necessary: The Art of Charles M. Schultz, and then beautifully the, designed. And then one. the new one is. Uh, uh, the Peanuts poster book. And I'm actually going to be doing a virtual event for the Schultz Museum uh, next Thursday night. Uh, I believe it's either 7 or 7.30 East Coast time. Okay. Um, uh, and that's going to be regarding the, the poster book. And we're going to have a visual component to that. And, and uh we will promote yeah. that on our social media and get the word out. Yeah, and and, yeah. Uh, and uh, mention to your your collaborator Jeff Spear and, yes. and again the, the great Charlie Kochman. Yes, yeah. yeah. These That's... are these are books that should be read because you you really get if you're a fan you really get the experience. Not only do you get this these wonderfully nostalgic feelings about the old strips, but you 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 really see the journey of this of this artist and this storyteller over time. And as I said, it's also wonderful to see his confidence grow. Yes, and his and his hand gets stronger and more yeah. and more confident as 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 he starts to come into his own as an artist and maybe maybe buoyed by by success. Yeah, do you have a strip? It's an impossible question, I know, but it, do do you have a favorite strip? Well, all Chip? right, and then so, I, and then I'm going to ask Craig the same question, so you get to think about it, Craig. All right, I I, I have a a sort of soundbite answer to this, but it's a very early strip from the fifties, and. It's, you know, it's just four panels and it's Charlie Brown and Patty. And so in the first panel, Charlie Brown has bought a waste paper basket at the store. And, you know, and Patty's like, what what do you got there? Well, I bought a waste paper basket at the store. (coughs) Oh, it's in a bag. So he takes out the waste paper basket from the bag and crumples up the bag and puts it in the wastebasket. Great. And that's the final panel. Gee, it's handy to have a wastebasket like that. And it's it's just... And then Lily Toplin stole that in the 60s as part of her routine. Or she either stole it or got the exact same concept. But well, she, let's steal from the best. But she tells the story like... Yesterday, I went to the store and I bought a waste paper basket and they put it in a bag. And when I got home, I put the bag in the waste paper basket. And it's just this bizarre it's great. commentary on consumerism. But again, like it's like for Schultz did it in like 1951 or two. And it's it's just such a great idea and simple and but but like deep. <laughs> it's crazy. I, I, I'm reminded of the movie Moonstruck when uh, when Nicolas Cage tells Cher that he's in love with her and she slaps him and she says, snap out of it. 
And I remember Snap Out of It as from a from a from a peanut strip. Yeah, oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Lu- Lucy screaming Snap Out of It as part as part of her cure. As part or, of her cure for his for Charlie Brown's depression. His depression. The the strip that stays with me, and it's not necessarily a sentimental one, but I think it's one that 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 sums up the Charlie Brown Lucy relationship. And I think it's a Sunday strip. Is is when Charlie Brown is desperate to get the Joe Schlobotnik trade. <laughs> <laughs> Joe Schlobotnik. <laughs> you guys know this one. <laughs> and and Lucy opens up one. He's been trying for months. He's been buying every trading card pack in the store, desperate to get. And anybody who ever collected uh, trading cards, uh, bubblegum cards, Mad like man. I did, Mad knows man. the knows the pain of this. He's dying to get Joe Schlobotnik. Lucy opens up the one pack that she's ever bought, and, she, and there's Joe Schlobotnik. You remember this one, Craig? Yeah, well, yeah. Well, you, and, you and, and he and he offers to trade every player that he has. It also, I love the strip too because it reveals your dad's love of, of Major League Baseball. So he oh, yeah. offers her a Jim Bunning and a Mil, and a Willie Mays and a Hank Aaron and and a Pete Rose and and every every and it's panel after panel after panel, and she doesn't want to part with it. Because he's kind of cute. Do you remember this? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and he tries every card, every offer. He, he exasperates himself. And finally, he just sulks out of the slinks out of the last frame or the next to last frame saying, my whole life, I do anything for a Joe Schlobotnik card. <laughs> and he's out of the frame. And Lucy in the last frame looks at the card and she says, eh, he's not that he's not as cute as I thought he was and tosses it in the trash. <laughs> 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 and that one sums it up for me. Yeah, we got yeah. we got Joe Slobotnik kind of kind of tied in in one of our latest ones that come out on Apple TV. Oh, you do good. Oh, yeah, that's we great. We reference him. That's great. Yeah, um, and I I like it too, as I said, because your dad was a, a lifelong sports fan, and and the details, his love of baseball, that he he names every star player in that in that strip, and it it just it uses the space, it uses up every frame in such a clever way. You know, I love how easily he adapted to the extra frames on Sunday. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, the first two panels were what they call the throwaway panels. So when you have the opening sequence yeah. where it had, you know, peanuts, and the, that was just for him to be able to play with the artwork in that panel and the one next to it, because he knew most newspapers didn't print those two panels. Those were throwaways. And so the story almost had, you know, two stories in one, because one was just a quick gag, and then the real story started on the next, next line down for the Sundays. Yeah, I think an, he would he would use all of those panels to drag out a drama. Chip, yeah. I'm I'm also reminded of the one where uh, uh, Linus is pouring the cereal, <laughs> the, 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 and he wants the cereal to be crunchy. And the phone rings, and it's Charlie Brown. Do you remember this one? Oh yeah. And every frame is just Charlie Brown just going on and on and on. And finally, Linus is sweating. He's in, He's got flop sweat. And in the, the next to last panel, he screams into the phone, my cold cereal is getting soggy. And you just, and the last panel is just Charlie Brown holding the other end of the phone, that deadpan stare into space. So it, it, it was great the way he, he, over time, would figure out how to, how to best use what he had to work with. Yeah, it was groundbreaking. I mean, the other groundbreaking one was the one where Charlie Brown's standing beneath the Akitanian tree. And that went on for like oh, yeah. five or six dailies in a row of him just standing, but and there was nothing more than that. I mean, that was a bold undertaking to do that, you know, without getting some kind of rebellion from the syndicate. Yeah. But uh, you ask about my favorite strip. Yeah. Uh, so I think this is 
for me, this is what's interesting because, you know, again, growing up with a thing, you see it from a children's perspective. And in those days, in the early 60s, 50s, and 60s, I think most kids learned, literally learned how to read by reading the comic strips yes. in the newspaper or in the books. That's how I learned to read. As you grow older, and now that I look back being an old adult, you can see that, there, that the strip, in most cases, always had two perspectives. There's an adult perspective of it, and there's a child perspective of it. And there's mm-hmm. just simply just the love of the art. So this is a very simple strip. For, for me, this hits home really personal. It's uh, Charlie Brown walks up to the barbershop, and he says, my dad likes to have me come down to the barbershop and wait for him. The next panel goes, no matter how busy he is, even if the shop is full of customers, he always stops to say hi to me. Then he goes inside. I sit here on the bench until 6 o'clock when he's through, and then we ride home together. And... It's going to almost make me cry because I think about it. Because the final line is, it really doesn't take much to make a dad happy. Mm. You know, now that I'm a father, you know, and you realize it's the simple things that are important in life. And I look back on when I was a kid and I didn't really appreciate what my dad was doing. But in the later years, I would go in and he might have like five or six comic strips <clears throat> laid out on his desk. And I would look at him and I'd, and I'd kind of point to him. I said, oh, that one's funny. Now I, now I really regret that I didn't compliment him more than I should have, you know, because you don't realize how important it is when you're a father that your kids recognize sure. the things you accomplish in life. They just kind of assume you're there and you come and you go and so forth. And now for me, it's, it's a retrospective thing that uh, has hit home. And that strip really sums it up. Mm. How beautiful. I, I had forgotten that one. I remember that. The, yeah. It's, 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 it's perfection. It's, 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 it's high art. And thanks for sharing that with us, Craig. Oh, glad to. All right. We want to thank some people, too. Uh, we want to thank Melissa Menta, who's somewhere on here. She's, she's, she's listening and observing at, the, at, the, at Peanuts Worldwide and Craig Herman. And, of course, our friend John Murray, who uh, is engineering the show, our, our trusty audio producer who never lets us down. And we want to thank a man who we've mentioned several times, Charlie Kochman. And I want to, thank, I want to mention my friend Mike Dobkins, uh, who is the biggest Peanuts fan I know, and he is particularly a fan of that strip you just talked about, Craig. That's a that's a beautiful one. By the way, mm. I think the you're familiar with the movie Rushmore, Wes oh, yeah. Anderson's movie. Hey. Oh yeah. I'm pretty sure the character, the main character's father, is a barber because of Peanuts and Charlie Brown. Mm. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he is like like our friend Paul Feig. He's a uh, he's a big Peanuts fanatic. So. It's it's just nice to see other things turning up in the culture, you know, that have been that have been inspired. Oh yeah, by this, oh, so many, by so this many. wonderful comic strip. So we thank you guys for doing this. And I would uh, I, I'll say this, even though the show's not going to, we're not going to put this up in time. But the Char- a Charlie Brown Christmas will air on Saturday night on PBS. There was an outcry because it wasn't going to be on free television. <laughs> so PBS PBS rode to the rescue. It's going to be on December thirteenth. We'll air after that, but we'll we'll do a big uh, we'll do a big push of it to remind people on social media. I think people of my generation uh, worship that show. Absolutely, I, I was born in '61. True work of art. Even putting yeah, the was, DVD was... in the other day, Craig, and that opening sequence where you just see the tracking shot across the the ice and yep. the snow falling, and 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 the Garaldi music starts. It it just it it. Not, of course, I'm nostalgic for it because it's something from my childhood, but it's. Charlie talked, uh, excuse me, uh, Chip talked before about the uh, the quiet of it. 
Yeah. The simple, the simple beauty of it. I could watch it a hundred times. So thanks, guys. Well, listen, thank you. And Craig, what an honor to be on here with you. Oh, it was good seeing you again, Chip. It's been a while. I think yeah. it was 2008 I saw you. Yeah. I got to say this too, uh, 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 Craig. People should find the Peanuts movie. Absolutely. Uh, don't, don't have to search for it. It's, it's, a, it's available uh, everywhere, and it's a beautifully done. And uh, it's, it's a, there are two love stories at the center of it with, uh, with, with uh, Snoopy's, uh, Snoopy's girlfriend and the, and the little red-haired girl. Not giving too much away, but it's, uh, it's really, really uh, exquisitely made. Well, thank you. So congratulations to you and your son, Brian. And we forgot to thank Lindsay, who did the, who did the tech on Craig's End. I don't know if she's yeah. still there. She's there, my producer. There you go, Lind- <laughs> Craig's daughter, Lindsay, who's been great and a, and a real pro. And uh, it takes a village to make these shows, so we appreciate everybody. So tell us about your podcast that you've been doing for, for a while now. Um, yeah, it's called Middlebrow, and it's a contemporary art podcast that's uh, – we set out to make an unpretentious podcast, which seems a little bit impossible, <laughs> but we do our best. Okay, and where can people get it? Wherever podcasts are sold. Right. Anywhere you find your podcast. Okay. Ironically, Gilbert and I s- set out to do a pretentious podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but neither one of us had the intelligence to carry it off. Or, or we, yeah. we didn't know what the word we didn't know what the word pretentious meant. That we weren't sure. We weren't totally sure. Thank you, Lindsay, for your help. Thank you, John. We'll 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 assemble all this. And thank you, guys. Again, happy Christmas, happy New Year. Thanks for being a part of it. Thank you. Thank you for the shout out. All right. Thank you, guys. So this has been Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre. And this has been a total tribute to Peanuts and its creator, Charles Schultz, with his son, Craig Schultz, and the world's expert on Peanuts, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think that's overselling me a little bit. He's certainly uh, one of them. <laughs> He's certainly one of them. Thank, thank you, gents. This was a lot of fun. I'm, 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 I'm sorry we lost Lee Mendelson last year because I wanted to do this for, for a number of years. Uh, but we, got, we got you guys, and thanks for being a part of this and making it special. And, and Merry Christmas to everybody. All and, right. Well, listen, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Send you shout out from me Gilbert Gottfried of course you would and that's why you'll go to cameo.com slash Gilbert Gottfried ah for birthdays weddings anniversaries graduations loads of stuff go to cameo.com slash Gilbert Gottfried it's the perfect gift